Well, it's really good to be back after a few weeks of uh, irregular Sundays. First normal Sunday in four weeks, and it's good to get back into kind of the rhythm of life. That was, I thought it was a fantastic Christmas, and certainly in terms of what we did as a church, I felt so blessed. Uh, those of you there last Sunday evening, we had our tea and testimonies. It was a really encouraging evening together, sharing stories of what God has been doing over the last year, and I'm really anticipating all that God has for us in the next 12 months. I feel excited about this year. I was out praying this morning, walking the dogs, and just felt really kind of stirring from God about uh, being excited about what He's going to do amongst us as a people this year, what we can anticipate, the things that we're praying for. I've got some particular things I'm praying for for us as a church. Uh, I've got some goals I'm praying for, and I'd love you to join with me in praying as well. I'm praying that we would have a lot more baptisms than we saw last year. So I'm praying that across our two sites, kind of averaged out, we'd have a baptism every month. And I'm praying for a new person to join us on a Sunday every week, so that by the end of the year, we're kind of 50 people more than we are at this, this time of the year. So those are, those are a couple of my goals, and I'd love you to join with praying for me, with me in those things as well. Uh, we're just going to do a five-week series to get the year started off, which we're calling Foundations. And uh, we're looking at some of the important foundations from God's Word that we personally as individuals need and that we as a church need together. And there are different ways in which we can do this, different grids we can look through in terms of how we think about what is foundational for us personally as a church. Uh, We tend to use three words to talk about what we're doing here at Gateway Adventure, purity and compassion, that we're on an adventure of faith, experiencing God's purity, sharing his compassion. That's kind of one grid that we use to explain what we're about. If you come on to uh, the church, uh, join the church course, there's 12 different values there which we talk about. Uh, But in this series, we're going to look at five foundational values. And uh, these are actually the five foundational values of the advanced family of churches which we're part of. I thought it was a good way to start the year by looking at these five things. And uh, we'll be looking at these, at these over these five weeks at those five things that being gospel-centered and mission-focused and disciple-making and spirit-empowered and elder-led, five values which uh, give some shape to what we're doing as a church. And I really wanted to help three categories of people this morning and in this series. The, the first category of, of person is if, if, you're, if you're a spiritual seeker, you're not yet clearly a follower of Jesus, but you're seeking after God in some way. Uh, And I'm hoping that this series will help people like you to understand more of what it is to be a Christian and why that is good news. Uh, Also hoping the second category of person is those people who are Christians but may be looking for a new church. This is the time of year, uh, often when people are moving location and maybe new in town and looking for a new place to worship. And if that's you, hopefully this five-week series will give you a, a flavor of what makes us tick here at Gateway and help you to decide whether this is the church for you or whether you should be looking somewhere else. And for all those of us who are committed here, part of the Gateway family, uh, really looking for this series to help recalibrate us as we begin the year to help us to think again about what we build our lives on, what we're built on as a church, to get some clear focus again. At our prayer meeting on Friday morning, Julie had a picture of uh, going to the opticians and getting lenses in your glasses and getting things in focus. And that's really what this uh, series is about, to help us get focused again about the things which God has called us to and the way in which we want to build. So this morning I want to talk about being gospel-centered and to talk about the power and simplicity of the gospel. And we're going to be focusing first on a few verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 
It's page 670 in the Bible. It should appear on the screen as well. Let me pray for us. King Jesus, thank you so much. You are our God and you are good. It's so good to come together as your people and to give you praise. Lord, thank you for the last few weeks. Thank you for all the blessings we experienced over the Christmas season. Lord, thank you that we're again back into our normal rhythm of life. And I pray that as, as we gather week by week, that we would be strengthened and encouraged and built up in you again. And Lord, I do ask for us, as we look at these five foundations over these five weeks, that, oh God, you'd help us to get some focus again, get clarity about what it is you've called us to and the way in which we're meant to build. And uh, there'll be a robustness about us as the people of God in this place because we're clear what your word is calling us to, and we're living faithfully in light of that. Amen. Amen. Okay, the context is this. So the Apostle Paul has planted a church in Corinth, and he's now moved on elsewhere. He's actually in Rome, and he's writing to them to encourage them about a number of different things and help them and warn them about things as well. And he says this in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 2. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God." Okay, I'm going to make three quick comments about this passage and then ask three questions of the text, which will help us to think about what it means to be gospel-centered. First thing is that Paul says that he came in fear and trembling to Corinth. Now, why was that? I think um, a large part of that was simply because Corinth was quite an intimidating place. It was a big city by uh, ancient standards, and it was a very diverse and quite an aggressive city. It was founded really as a commercial center. It was all about getting ahead, making more, getting on top of the pile. And so it was quite a, quite a kind of aggressive, intense place. And uh, cities like that can be a bit intimidating. It's a tough town to go to. And it's probably also just that whenever you start something new, that feels a bit intimidating. You get set in one place, you get comfortable, and to go and do something else in a new town feels a bit scary. It's like kids starting at school for the first time or starting a new job or moving town. It can feel a bit intimidating, a bit scary. And uh, actually, there's something in that for us probably as a church as well as we start this new year, that the tendency always for churches is to settle and get comfortable and want to kind of protect the, the comfort zone. And actually, what the gospel calls us to again and again is to push into new things. And over the last year or two, uh, well, always in our experience as a church, God calls us to do different things, to try different things, to uh, have things that we go for which are dangerous and risky and potentially exposing. And, and, and it can, it's much more comfortable not to do that. It's much more comfortable just to stick with what you know and not do something different or something risky or something new because to do that is intimidating. But God keeps calling us, he always calls his people into doing new things, into risking new things for him. And that's what Paul did. He responded to the call of God and he went to Corinth and started a new church. And Over this year, I'm sure God will call us to some things which might make us feel a little bit uncomfortable, a little bit intimidated, a little bit fearful and trembling, but which by his grace he will help us in. Second thing is to note how Paul just kind of toggles backwards and forwards between the message of the cross and the power of the Spirit. So he weaves those two things together. He talks about the cross and he talks about the power of the Spirit. Theologian 
P.T. Forsyth called the cross and the spirit inseparable bedfellows. The two go together, go hand in hand. Think about the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost. There's that incredible encounter with the Spirit of God. The disciples following Christ's death and resurrection are waiting in that upper room in Jerusalem. And the day of Pentecost comes and the Spirit of God falls upon them and they're filled with power and flames of fire appear about them and they go out into the streets and start speaking in other languages and proclaiming Jesus. And Peter gets up and preaches and he preaches and he, he preaches these two things. He preaches the cross, the cross, the cross of Jesus and the Spirit, the power of God. Come to the cross and experience the power of God through his Holy Spirit. And foundational for us has got to be that we're a church where we're both mighty in the message of the cross. That, in that sense, we, we're theological. We're, we've got our truth sorted out. It's about the cross of Jesus Christ. But we're also mighty in the power of the Spirit. That we're genuinely charismatic. We're not just a bit more lively than some other expressions of church, but we have an experienced, real encounter with the living God, His Spirit at work in us, dynamic amongst us, moving amongst us, demonstrating the power of God amongst us. Paul effortlessly, effortlessly, more effortlessly than I'm saying effortlessly, weaves those two things together. And then the third thing, and this is really where we're going to, uh, this is kind of the nub of it. Note, we can use the term gospel, the gospel is kind of a shorthand for the phrase that Paul uses here in verse 2. Jesus Christ and him crucified. I resolve to know nothing amongst you except Jesus Christ and him crucified crucified. That's the gospel. There are different ways in which we can define the gospel. There's both kind of a wide lens at which we can look at the gospel and there's a kind of a narrow focus lens. And really the wide lens of the gospel is, well, the gospel is all of God's message to us. It's all of God's good news to us. And it's all that God does for us, all that God does for his people. And so we can look at the whole kind of experience of human life and we can see how the gospel applies and we can see how God is involved in all the affairs of the world. And there's that kind of breadth to the gospel. It's about everything that God has ever done and all that God is doing and all that God will do. That's, that's, the gospel is broad, but it's also focused. And the narrow focus is Jesus Christ and him crucified. What is the gospel? It's that God sent his son Jesus to die in our place, that our sins might be forgiven. He was raised to new life, that we might be raised to new life with him. That's the gospel. Jesus Christ and him crucified. When Paul talks about the gospel, he's talking both the kind of the wide scope of the gospel and also this focus. And we can use this term, the gospel, as a, as a shorthand phrase to, to sum up what he's saying here. Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's three quick comments about the text. Now, three questions about what Paul is saying here. First question what did Paul deliberately preach and why? He says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, why was that? And he gives the answer in verse 5. He says, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's what he wants us to get. That's what we need to get this morning. Faith resting in the power of God. Now, he doesn't explain at this point how this all works. He doesn't explain the gospel beyond saying Jesus Christ and him crucified. He says, but this is what I want you to know, that your faith 
is resting in. It rests in the power of God. It rests in Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's where true power comes from. It comes from the cross. Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's, that's what your faith has to be found in. That's what it's based on. That's where you, that's where you find life. That's where you found, find salvation, in the, in the cross. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Second question, what did Paul deliberately not preach then, and why was that? He tells us he deliberately steered clear of so-called wisdom and lofty speech and eloquence, eloquent speech. And this is, this is very interesting because if you read the Apostle Paul's letters, and in this church we often preach from the Apostle Paul's letters, his letters make up a major portion of the New Testament, his writings often are wise and they are eloquent. Sometimes the things that Paul says are simple, but he's never simplistic and he's committed clearly to preaching a full gospel, not just a narrow slither of it. So why does this highly intelligent, highly eloquent, highly articulate, highly intellectual man say that he didn't go to Corinth speaking with human wisdom and lofty speech and with eloquence? Why, in particular, in Corinth was Paul eager to emphasize Jesus Christ and him crucified? The answer is given us back in uh, verse 22 of chapter 1. He says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. For the Greeks, wisdom was really important. Theirs was a, a culture that was impressed by wisdom in a way that in many ways, ours is as well. We're impressed by, by knowledge and, and know-how. And the Corinthians had a, a slogan, a saying, the wise man is king. And along comes Paul in fear and trembling, and his message to these Corinthians was, believe in a crucified Messiah. Believe in a crucified Messiah. That's the way to experience real power. That's the, experience to come to, that's the way to come to God. That's the way to find salvation. That's the way to find life. And uh, many of those who heard him declare this message thought it was foolish. Or actually, it's a kind of a stronger word. It's more like kind of madness. They thought he was crazy. And it was crazy at at least two levels. The first level is it's just kind of a crucified Messiah. That's kind of an oxymoron because... The Messiah, a Messiah is meant to be victorious. The Messiah is meant to be clearly powerful, meant to come in triumph. And you're saying the Messiah was crucified. Well, crucifixion looks like defeat. So that looks like an oxy. It doesn't make any sense. Victory and defeat in the same kind of phrase, that just seems crazy. And so Paul comes proclaiming a crucified Messiah, Jesus Christ and him crucified. And to the Greeks, that doesn't look like wisdom, that looks like madness, it looks like folly. And another reason why they would have regarded it as folly is because Paul says, all you need to do to be right with God is to believe in this Messiah. All you need to do is believe in Jesus Christ and him crucified. And the response the Corinthians would have made was, well, that can't be right. That can't be right because surely you've got to do something to please God. Surely I, as an individual, have to do something to make things right with God. Human wisdom assumes that the way that we get right with God is by doing good stuff. 
I get right with God by doing good stuff. That was true in Corinth, and it's still very much true in, uh, in our society. It's amazing how often I talk to people, and that's the underlying kind of worldview, that essentially I'm a good person and I do good things, and if there is a God, well, he'll be okay with me because I'm, do, I'm a good person doing good things. It's about what I do. And Paul comes along to Corinth and says, no, it's nothing to do with what you do. It's all about Jesus. Actually, what you have to do is just believe. Believe in Jesus Christ and him crucified. True wisdom, God's wisdom, is very different from human wisdom. God's wisdom doesn't divide humanity into those who are good, doing good things, and those who are bad, doing bad things. No, God just says all human beings deserve death because they're rebellion against him. But in his kindness, he sent his son Jesus to die in our place. And those who believe in him are forgiven of their sins. And so actually, there's not really even a category of good. There's two categories. One category is forgiven, and the other category is unforgiven. And the way that you get forgiven is by believing Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that looks like madness to the Greeks. What are we going to do? How do we? Surely there must be something for us to do. No, actually, all you do is you just put your trust in him, Jesus Christ and him crucified. To the Greeks, this is like madness, not wisdom. And then for the Jewish people, well, the Jewish people were expecting the Messiah to come and do a big political statement. They were looking for a Messiah, a rescuer to come who would exalt the nation of Israel again. They're looking for powerful signs, writing in the sky. And again, that's so often how people in our culture are today. People who so often say, well, I'd believe God if he did if he wrote in the sky for me, if he provided for me this thing I really want, if he made me well when I was sick, these things, if God does that, then I'll believe in him. And the thing is, God might do those things. God in his grace does sometimes do dramatic and amazing things. But the greatest sign that God has given us is his son, Jesus Christ, and his death and resurrection. And so Paul comes to the Corinthians and says, believe this. Not coming with eloquence, not coming with lofty words, with human wisdom. I'm coming and I'm proclaiming Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is the gospel. That's the way that you come to God. Is it like madness? Is it like folly to the Greeks and to the Jews? But it's the way that we come to God. It's the way that we get saved. Jesus Christ and him crucified is true wisdom. It's true power. It's the way to salvation. But it's also powerful for those of us who do believe, who have come to that place. And this is the uh, third question we're going to ask, and we're going to spend a little bit more time. How can Jesus Christ and him crucified be sufficient for ongoing power in my life? What does, what does the gospel mean? Sometimes we can uh, get into this kind of place where we... we what is the gospel? Well, it's Jesus Christ and him crucified. And it's almost like, that's, well, that's the way in, but then what happens next? What relevance does the gospel have to me now? Well, the gospel is essential for us. The gospel is the way by which we continue to experience the power of God. Jesus Christ and him crucified is how we experience God's power and salvation. And Jesus Christ and him crucified is how we experience ongoing power in our Christian lives. And this happens because the gospel works in our hearts. The gospel 
molds and changes our hearts so they start to reflect the heart of God more and more. And this is why being gospel-centered is such an important foundation for us. And as we start this new year, it's a great way to begin to think about what we're going to focus on and how we focus. What is the shape of our hearts? Are our hearts being shaped by the gospel? Are our hearts being shaped by Jesus Christ and him crucified? Let's uh, work through some examples. The gospel and the stingy heart. It might be that our heart is prone to stinginess. How does the gospel change that? How does the gospel shape our hearts? Paul wrote another letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he talks to them about the amazing grace of God they've experienced. And he says to them, see that you excel in this act of grace. He's talking about giving also. See that you excel in the grace of giving. This means it's offering time. Paul is going to ask them for some money. And how is he going to motivate the church? Probably by commanding them, because that's what human wisdom does. Human wisdom says, how, if you need some money from somebody, how do you get it? You get it by commanding, by demanding. Give me the money. But actually, he doesn't do this. Verse 8, he says, I say this not as a command. It's not a command he's giving them. And that's really important. The thing is that Paul knows that kind of commands can bend our hearts temporarily, but they soon snap back to their original shape. And it it might be even in a setting like this that you hear a really persuasive speaker saying, give your money as a kind of a command, and you think, yes, I will, and then by Wednesday, your heart snapped back to its stingy shape again. Or another tactic we can use to raise money is guilt. And to be honest, this is the way that much of charity operates. It's showing us pictures of starving children in Africa, which is meant to stir compassion, but also is meant to kind of stir guilt. Oh, I feel, I feel guilty. I'm sitting here stuffing myself on Christmas turkey, and I stick on the TV, and there's a charity advert about some starving child in Africa. I feel guilty. Of course, I must give some money. So we can try and get money out of people by commanding or by guilting people. That's not what Paul does. See what he goes on to say. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. What's Paul doing there? What he's doing is pointing the Corinthians again to the gospel. He's bringing the power of Jesus Christ and him crucified to their hearts. Remember Jesus, how rich he was and how he gave that up for us. And what that does when we think about the gospel, Jesus Christ and him crucified, it starts to change our hearts. It doesn't compel us by a command or by guilt, but actually the whole shape of our hearts begins to get altered by the gospel. That We see the gospel is unbelievably generous. And as we respond to the gospel, our hearts become more generous as well. Another example, what about the lazy heart. How does the gospel help us if we're a bit lazy? And again, this might be a good one for us at the start of the year. It can be a time of year when we perhaps feel a bit, whoa, it's hard to get the wheels turning again, isn't it? I felt yesterday afternoon, uh, after the first week back at work, I just felt exhausted yesterday afternoon. I was trying to read a book. I fell asleep for an hour, like an old man. Terrible. (laughs) But I do love an afternoon nap. But it might, it might be that uh, laziness is, is our problem. Now, what does Paul say about this in uh, 
towards the end of 1 Corinthians, he says this about his, the way he lived. I worked harder than any of the other apostles, he says. I worked harder than any of them. Now, what motivated Paul to work harder? Was it a kind of a sense of guilt? Again, was it command? No, it was this. It was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. It's the grace of God. It's Jesus Christ and him crucified as Paul's power source. Because what Paul has found in the gospel is the love of God. And there's no defense against love. You know, the the heart resists law. The heart resists commands. When we see the don't walk on the grass sign, we always put the foot onto the grass because the heart resists law. And uh, command or guilt in the end isn't enough to make you work hard. Now, when I was at school, I, I didn't work hard at all in school. I, I didn't enjoy it. I didn't in much enjoy learning. And I would do all the things to avoid work. I would do the things which looked like work but weren't work. And I would deliberately get away from work if I could. I, and, and the more that people said to me, Matthew, you need to knuckle down and work harder, the kind of the more I wanted to resist it. Because no, it just, there was, it's not... It's not compelling. And then when I finally got to, to university, I, I actually began to love what I was doing. And the whole thing changed, and I worked really hard at university, and the reason I worked hard was because I found that I loved it. It's the love, there's no defense against love. And what Paul has found is the love of God, because Jesus Christ and him crucified has come to me. And so he works hard. And if our problem actually is a kind of a spiritual laziness, there are no amount of me or any other guy standing at the front and saying, you must do this, you really should do that. That'll have no impact upon you. Actually, what we need to experience afresh is the love of God. We need to look again at the gospel. Jesus Christ was crucified for me. And feel our hearts growing in love towards him. And that causes us then to work diligently, like Paul, to work harder than anyone else because we experience the grace of God, the love of God, because Jesus Christ was crucified for us. What about if you've got an unforgiving heart? In the Gospel of Matthew, we read a story that Jesus told about a, a king who forgives a servant a huge debt, and then that servant goes out and finds somebody who owes him a small amount of money, and he gets a guy by the neck and says, you've got to pay me back. And it's a story that Jesus told to reveal kind of the hypocrisy that can often be in the human heart when it comes to forgiveness. And it might be that we're struggling with forgiveness in some area of our lives. It might be that there's somebody that we just kind of can't get out. It's just kind of stuck in us. It's kind of unforgiveness towards them. How do you deal with that? Do you deal with it just by kind of trying to think nice thoughts? Do you try and deal with it just by trying to forget about them? Now, the way that you deal with it is by the gospel. It's by Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's coming again to the cross and thinking about the extent of my debt, which Jesus has wiped out. That's the whole point of the parable. The great king has wiped out my enormous debt. So how can I possibly obsess about someone's small debt towards me? What the gospel does is change our hearts. So we stand amazed at the forgiveness we've received in Christ. And that makes us then forgiving towards others. The, the shape of our heart is oriented towards forgiving others because Jesus Christ has forgiven us. What about 
an unfaithful heart. It might be that uh, you're prone to wandering. The, actually, the spirit of our age encourages transience in all kinds of areas of life and doesn't encourage faithfulness. It encourages keeping your options open and getting out if things get difficult. And we might think, well, I actually don't even have the, the strength to be faithful. I mean, it's, there's a situation where I know I'm meant to be faithful, but I just don't know how. How, how do you find the power to be faithful in a faithless age. Well, it's through Jesus Christ and him crucified. 2 Timothy 2.13, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. The gospel begins to shape our hearts towards faithfulness. I, in my own strength, find it hard to be faithful. What do I do? I come to Jesus again the crucified Messiah who is faithful and cannot deny himself. And as I look to him, as I look to the cross, his faithfulness begins to work in my heart. And the shape of my heart begins to change. And I find that by his power, I can be faithful. What about the gospel and the impatient heart? Maybe we're a bit short-tempered with others. Maybe we're lacking in mercy towards other people. 1 Timothy 1.16, I received mercy for this reason, that in me Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Jesus Christ and, he, and him crucified were shaped by the mercy that we have received. Jesus has been merciful to me. He died on my behalf. When I receive that, when I turn to the gospel again, it has to begin to shape my heart so that I become merciful towards others. It's the gospel. The gospel empowers us as Christians to live in a way which is like Christ Jesus. There's many other examples we could think of or skip past because of time. But let's focus it in on this. Isn't this message of the gospel just fantastic (laughs) Christianity is not human wisdom Christianity doesn't operate on the same basis that human wisdom does, it's why it looked like folly to the Greeks and to the Jews and to our world it looks like folly a crucified Messiah, surely that's madness no, that's the way to find the power of God that's the way to life, it's very different from human wisdom, it's true wisdom and more than that, it's, it's not even just a code to live by. And we can kind of fall into that sort of moralistic way of life. The Christianity gives us a moral framework of, of doing life. And no, it, no, it's not even just that. There are lots of moral frameworks actually in the world which give a pretty good framework to live, which will make you a pretty good person. No, it's more than that. The gospel is revolutionary power from heaven because of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that's why the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians, I decided to know nothing when I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. How are you Corinthians? How are you Paulites? How are you Bournemouthians? How are you going to get right with God? How are you going to find power that will sustain you? It's through Jesus Christ and him crucified. The way that we come to God is through the gospel. That's the threshold by which he must cross. Believe. Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's the ABC, but it's also the X, Y, and Z. It's the complete alphabet of how we live. It's the door by which we come into the presence of God, but it's then the corridor which we walk down and explore. It's new life and new lifestyle. 
And we need to increasingly grow in our gospel belief. It might be that you've never believed the gospel and that today is your day. Today's the day where you make that ABC decision of putting your trust in this crucified Messiah and entering into new life in God. That'd be wonderful. Those of us who've been Christians for many years, we need to keep growing in the gospel as well. The gospel isn't just the threshold. It's not just the beginning, but it's the whole thing because the gospel is what empowers us and shapes our hearts. Being gospel-centered is an essential foundation for us upon which we need to build so that this year and for as long as God gives us breath in our bodies, we might know his goodness and grace working in us. We might increase in joy and confidence in him and that we might witness to the world what it means to worship a suffering Savior who died in our place and was raised for us to come into life and has poured out his Spirit on us. We might know his joy and his presence and his power. In 2017, let's be gospel-centered. Amen? Brilliant. Why don't we stand and I'll pray, and I'm going to shoot down the road to 502 and... Uh, leave you to carry on worshipping Jesus here. King Jesus, thank you that we, you keep bringing us back to the gospel. Lord, thank you for the gospel. Jesus Christ and him crucified and all that means. I do pray for us, Lord. I pray those three different categories of people that might be here this morning. I pray for those who are seeking and yet don't know that it's you would open the door of the gospel to them today. Lord, I pray for anyone who's searching for a, a new church home that might be clear, they might find, maybe even amongst us, a place to settle. And Lord, I pray for those of us who are part of this church that we would again commit together to building on this foundation, the gospel. We wouldn't ever move away from it. We wouldn't look for alternatives to it. We wouldn't start to rely on human wisdom rather than true wisdom but we would know the power of the gospel at work among us. We'd proclaim it and celebrate it and love it, Jesus, and find our hearts more and more molded to a gospel shape. I ask this in your wonderful name, Saviour. Amen.